Well, good morning. Let's see, welcome to the place that I did not intend to be today. I intended to be here, but not where we are in this uh, study. Some of you remember back on July 26th when we began our last series, our Refresh series, that I said when I started that uh, series off with a message, The King of the Kings, I said, we're talking about this in July because I don't want to be talking about politics in October and November. And yet here we are, two weeks from a very divisive election day, right? And here I am standing on the stage beginning a series on um, political incorrectness, right? And I will tell you that, like, this is partly Drew's fault, just so we all know, <laughs> in a good way, right? We, we were talking on the preaching calendar a couple of months ago, and Drew is a good thinker. And he's like, well... You know, sometimes that's how he approaches me. Well, um, like if the whole nation's going to be captivated by this and divided by this and encompassed by all this messiness around this, delec- this election, um, like shouldn't we as a church speak into that? And like, yeah, we probably should be speaking into that. And, and so that, that conversation led to how we could leverage this time in our service, how we could look through the scriptures and challenge ourselves as followers of Jesus to be different, right? In the midst of all this chaos, to live out our faith in a different way, to engage one another in a way that would be very countercultural to what we are seeing and hearing every day in, in, a, in a two words, to how, how do we live politically incorrect in a crazy world that we're living in? So these thoughts in my mind combined back at that time with some of the COVID chaos that we were experiencing and those related challenges took me to a passage that Drew and I are going to unfold for you for the next five weeks. Okay, now So that's right, five weeks. Like we're two weeks before the election, which means we're going to be looking at what it means for us to live as God's followers before the election, at the time of the election, and even after the election, not knowing exactly at this point what that election is going to bring. Because this provides us, in our estimation, with a season of accountability, right? Accountability for our hearts, accountability for our attitudes, accountability for our words, and accountability for our relationships. Okay? Now the series is going to come from the book of Philippians chapter 2, the first 18 verses of that chapter. But to start, I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. So open your Bibles or your Bible apps. If you want to grab one of those Bibles in the chair in front of you, it's page 1181, 1161, sorry. Okay? Now Philippians 2 is going to start with the word, therefore. Okay, which is leading us to what Paul has been talking about in Philippians chapter 1. So in Philippians chapter 1, if you're there, look with me at verse 27. And, and you got to love in our context those first two words in the NIV. Whatever happens. Hmm, that's a little scary, isn't it? <laughs> to say, whatever happens. Now, Paul was not writing this referring to an election. But in our context, those words can be scary nonetheless. But Paul says... Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner 
worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Okay? Now, what do you say that here, like today, nine days before the election, and that on election day, okay, and, and for at least three weeks after election day, that we each as individuals agree to, as Paul says, conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Okay? And that we strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. Now, for many of us, that will be a tall order. Okay? And by my observation, for some of you, you are going to have to change your social media behavior for you to live out that kind of a commitment. And for all of us, can we understand, like this is the calling of God on our lives, that we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So in chapter 2 now, verse 1, Paul starts this classic passage with these words in verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Okay? So we're starting off this series on political incorrectness with a look at the subject of unity, uh, something that is in very short supply these days, as we know. And we begin by looking at the foundation of unity. There in verse 1 that we read, Paul is going to set forth a basis for unity that we have as Christians. Now, I don't think this is meant to be a complete list by Paul of all the foundations of our unity, but it's a pretty substantive one that gives us several foundational things that draw us together as God's people. He wrote, Therefore, if we have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... He said, you will reflect this by your unity. Okay? Now, it seems to me that the unity that is being called for today in our society, in our time, is much more honestly characterized as conformity. Not unity, but conformity. If there's any unity, it's often built on us either reasoning or intimidating or somehow requiring other people to think our way. And that's simply asking them not to be unified with me, but to conform themselves to my way of thinking, to my truth. And that's why we don't experience unity. And why we find that even at times when we agree on a desired outcome, okay, or we feel um, connected to others because we make the same choice, or because we might vote the same way, I would venture to say that most of us might not be unified with most other people 
in how we arrive at that choice or why we might even make that vote. Often in our world, people are simply united in what they oppose. Not the same thing that Paul's talking about. Because Paul teaches us that unity flows out of our relationship with Christ. Because we are in Him and because He is in us. He says that Christ encourages you. I love the, the, the weight of this word encouragement in the scriptures. It, it has kind of a double meaning, both of which I find to be very substantive. On the one hand, it means that, that, um, that the gospel encourages us or it pushes us or stirs us toward action. Right? We're encouraged toward obedience, and we need to be. Right? But on the other hand, it also has this sense at which um, it, it reassures us through God's promises. We are encouraged, if you will, that what we're doing is right by God. So Christ encourages us, He moves us forward, and when we move forward, He encourages us that we're moving in the right direction. That's the gist of that first part of verse, verse 1 there. And then the message paraphrase of that second part says, if His love has made any difference in your life. Okay, a little different rendering of those words, but powerful in that way. I, I like what Paul is writing here in the fact that Paul um, encourages us. He's going to encourage us in verse 2 um, to do all these things, to live out in a certain way, but, not, but it's because of what God has already done for us. That's the force of verse 1, right? He's going to say, this is what it should look like, but that didn't just appear out of nowhere. Just come to us out of a vacuum. Because God has been at work in your life, he will say, these things ought to be at work in your life. Because God is alive in you, this is what it looks like. He's going to get to that in verse 2. Because you are receivers of God's rich blessings, you also ought to be responders to those blessings. And it's not because you've earned it. <laughs> it's not because you're all that. It's because God made a decision to love us in spite of our choices. And that's the love that we are to display to others. How counter-cultural would it be? Like if a group of Christians from Troy Christian Church decided to love people because we know what it means to be loved in spite of. To be loved unconditionally by conforming our ideas, our opinions, our ideologies, <laughs> our political slant, or our candidate of choice during these times. Like if we loved people, maybe even in spite of those things, because we know all that God has loved us in spite of. I mean, we just came out of communion time that reminds us how much God loves us in spite of our deficiencies. And not just as individually. Paul says this, this God's Spirit unites us. Okay? It's not conforming to something from without. It's like God is active and alive 
inside of us, and that's what draws us together. It's the work of God. It's not what we're thinking about the things going on around us. It's how God is teaching us to think because he's alive inside of us from the overflow of God working within us. That's why it's so politically incorrect, (laughs) because it doesn't have to do with all the things we're hearing. It has to do with who we are becoming as Christ followers. When you're anchored and driven by something from within that overflows out of you, God's work, you're not as easily susceptible to the demands to conform that come from without. Does that make sense? Yeah, because God's alive in us. And we connect with others in unity because we share the same spirit living within us. And because what's common to us, the spirit of God in us, it's it's more precious than a bloodline even, Scripture tells us, and we know. And it's certainly more precious than some sort of political view that we might hold, no matter how dearly and strongly we hold that political view. And then through our commitment to Christ, and though our commitment to Christ is, is solid and firm, individually and collectively, because we are reflective of the God who lives in us. Paul says we're filled with tenderness and compassion. Maybe your translation says, we have a heart. (laughs) We care. It's lost. Isn't that lost a bit in our culture these days? And you don't find a whole lot of, we have a heart and we care. We find a whole lot of, if you have a brain, you'll think like me. If you want to be right, you'll vote like me. To say all that should come from within because God's alive in us is incredibly politically incorrect. So Paul says in verse 1, if you have any sensitivity toward the spiritual dimension of life, just a summary of those four pieces, any dimension toward the, the, the spiritual dimension of life, any sensitivity, respond to the challenge that I'm going to give you here in verse 2 which talks about the fruit of unity. If these things are the foundation of it, what's it look like? Now, have you ever had someone that, that meant so much to you? Like they've done so much for you, they've brought so much value to you that you're like, there's no way I could ever repay them for what they've done in my life. Okay? And if somehow that person said to you, looked at you and said, hey, would you do me a favor? Wouldn't you jump on that and say, finally, I get to give back to this person. Finally, I can do something for them for all they've done for me. Well, Paul starts out to these Philippian believers there in verse 2. He says, this is what you could do for me. Here's what you could do and why. And so he says in chapter 2, verse 2, about these things we've just talked about, he says, because of that, then make my joy complete by being like-minded by having the same love, by being one in spirit, and by being of one mind. The verse literally reads, set your mind on the same thing, Christians. Not so much in this case, I don't believe doctrine, and certainly not set your mind on the same thing as it regards to opinion, and certainly not in our context mandating 
that you and I all have to think alike, much less vote alike. Paul is calling to a unity of attitude and a unity of purpose. Remember back in chapter 1, therefore he said, because I want you to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he goes on to call them and us to love each other. Now how do you show that love for one another when really no two people much less a whole congregation of some 400-odd people in that way, how are we going to completely agree on everything? How do you love people who disagree so strongly with you about the things that you feel so strongly about? How do you love people when we can't even understand how they could possibly come up to another idea or conclusion than the one that I come to with regard to things like these issues or politics or candidates. We might start by understanding that Paul's not talking about a unity of the head, but a unity of the heart in these verses. It's not that the head doesn't matter. He's talking about how we live and how we respond, and how we love. Remember in Luke chapter 10 that Jesus is asked by a teacher of the law about receiving eternal life. This is what it says, beginning in verse 25. It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replied, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus taught us as his followers um, that there is a first commandment okay, that asks us to give everything that we have and everything that we are to God. And when we do, that's what makes the second commandment possible. So if you're trying to love your neighbor, be unified with your neighbor, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel to your neighbor, Jesus says that's going to be really hard unless you get the first commandment right. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength and your mind. People in our world And sometimes people in our church, like there's often such, such a great need for love and acceptance um, that we expect something from people that only God can give. That kind of love, that kind of acceptance. And then when that love and acceptance don't come or it doesn't come on our timetable or it doesn't come in the way that we think it should come, we end up getting angry, resentful, and as we've seen in our world, sometimes even violent. Yet as soon as we abandon the first command to love God with everything we have, or listen to me, as soon as we abandon that as the first command, given it the priority that Jesus says we should, 
we move towards self-destruction. And the second command never happens. People have a hard time loving others unconditionally. We sometimes, in our small groups, we say, don't say we statements, say I statements. Like, I have a hard time loving others unconditionally sometimes. Because I have a hard time loving myself unconditionally sometimes. Because I don't always understand and don't always reflect the love of God. And so if we're trying to love others without having that love of God as our first place in our life, it simply is never going to happen. Now to understand here that Paul is somehow commanding us to be robotic, right? Somehow turn our brains off and, and just, you know, march in line according to someone's orders. I think instead, Paul sees us as a group of people, Christians, who despite our differences are willing to show our love for one another. Despite someone might think differently than I am, we share a common bloodline that flows right through the cross. Paul says we are different because we have received the love of God. And it shows itself in a different way. Now, he's going to show us what that looks like in the following verses in Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to unfold that for you in this series. But Paul finishes off this section by saying and encouraging us that we are to be one in spirit and that we are of one mind. Just with a number of other things here, remember, unity has much more to do in this section with attitude than it does with doctrine. Here's why. Like if we all had to be of the same doctrine, then every time I learned something new about God, I'd have to separate myself from you. Every time you grew in your Christian faith, you'd have to separate because we weren't thinking alike. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about attitude in that way. So, how, how is the church supposed to think the same thing? Okay. How is the church to have the same love? How is the church supposed to be united in spirit? Does that mean that we're somehow supposed to create some rigid set of standards that everyone must conform to? Like, that's been tried before, right? <laughs> and how'd that work for everybody? You know, it, it doesn't work. We, it's not that we all have to think alike. Not even that we all have to act alike. Doesn't mean we all have to vote alike. If that was true, then wouldn't it simply be a different kind of political correctness? that was driven by the church instead of by the world? No, Paul is saying, have the same mind, meaning have a love for one another that is compelled by having the same Holy Spirit alive inside of us. And that's what we're going to unfold as we walk through this series. Bob Russell tells a story. It's a little little dated, and it's uh, about a little different flavor of, uh, of church, but in this church there was an argument going on about having a piano that was being used in worship. And about half the people thought they should, and about half the people were d- definitively opposed to it. 
So you can imagine that there was quite a stir one Sunday when sitting front and center on the stage was a brand new piano. And then it was used in the worship service and half the people got up and walked out in protest. And the next Sunday they all came back ready, <laughs> ready for a fight only to find that the piano was gone. Well, accusations started and we know who moved that and all of those kind of things, but they didn't know what to do. They just sat frustrated and actually it went on for six months. Where'd our piano go? We paid good money for that. We should be using those kind of things, right? Well, guess where they found the piano six months later? In the baptistry. Russell said, you know, when the church fights, the baptistry is not very necessary. He said, I doubt if God would ever bless a bickering church. Paul says, if God is alive in you, it ought to make a difference in how you act towards one another. And when you get that figured out, you as a people conduct yourselves in a manner to those outside this place that is worthy of the gospel. Now I want to move away from Philippians for just a moment. I'll give you just a picture or a model of unity. Jesus' words in John chapter 17. Here he is um, actually praying for his disciples. And not just for his disciples, but those they would disciple. And you think about those disciples who made disciples, who made disciples till eventually you became a disciple. And we realize when he's praying in John 17, he's praying for you. And he's praying for me because we are a result of all of those chains of people sharing their faith about Jesus. And he says this in John 17, verses 20 and 21. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. He's praying to God, not just for these disciples that are here. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message that they may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Like this unity piece makes a big deal difference. One way or another, it either draws people to God or it shuns them from Him. Unity is so critical because the fruit of unity is people coming to faith in Jesus. John Bunyan wrote on, on the influence of the life of Christians, he said, when all of the garments, talking about Christians, when all their garments are white, meaning when their lives are holy, when they are living according to the scriptures, when they're living according to the righteousness of God, when all of their garments are holy, he said, or, or white, he said, the world will count them his. So think about the way you're living. And just on that alone, the merits of the life that you're living, do people know that you belong to Jesus? Or do they not? The skeptic German poet Heinrich Heine said these th words to Christians. He said, you show me your redeemed life and I might be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. It makes a difference how we live. Look around. I mean, unity, it, it, it's so elusive in our culture today. 
the political climate makes it painfully obvious. Now instead of looking around, look within. I hope it has not eluded you. And I hope that you discovered anew this morning, like you can experience unity and that the world can come closer to experience and seeing God because you and I do in that way. I'm going to end this morning with a commitment. I'm going to ask you to make a commitment. You can write it down in your notes. Uh, You can type it into your phone on your notes section. You can simply fill in the bottom of your handout. It's just a commitment that says this. I, Chris Heiss, now you have to write your own name. You can't make that commitment for me. (laughs) You can hold me accountable to it, but you can't make it for me. I, Chris Heiss, agree to conduct myself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ before, during, and after this election. Would you make that kind of commitment? Knowing that that the, the fruit of that commitment is someone either coming closer to Jesus or pushed farther from Jesus because of how you are acting. Now to do that and to live that way, you've got to have the Spirit of God alive inside of you. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. And if you want to talk about a struggle with that, with myself or one of our leaders, if you want to talk about what it looks like to embrace a life with Jesus, me back in the corner would love to talk to you as we contemplate how do we represent Jesus leading up to this election, (laughs) as this election unfolds and afterwards. I guarantee you if we live by the words of Philippians chapter 2, we will fall into the category of being politically incorrect. But we'll be right with God. Let's pray together. Father God, you are um, worthy of our lives. You're worthy of every effort we make to reflect your righteousness. You're worthy of our obedience and our love simply as a response to the love that you have given us. Lord, there is a world out there that is dying without you. They are lost and have no hope of eternity. Many of them don't even know their creator, but they know us. Would you empower us to reflect you to them so they might meet the one who loves them and died to save them and can give them eternal life. Lord, use our lives, we pray in Jesus' name.